Yeah. What's going on? Not too much. Welcome back. Season two, episode nine. Pretty confidence, episode nine. This yeah, is the Master ten, Podcast. Episode ten. I'm getting episode this other ten. day in the back. Misplaced confidence as usual. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Neil and Chandler Halberton. And we're here, Master Keys Podcast. What are we talking about today, Neil? So we're going to update on our personal news as always. Then we're going to go into speaking about worldwide news. Obviously, the terrible situation in the Ukraine, um, how that's impacting markets, inflation, yep. the crypto space, and all of that. There's a rumor that you mentioned of some changes to down payments and loan rules, which could be massive. Massive changes, potentially 35% down payments on investment properties. Do you hear that? That makes me sick. Yeah, USA is looking at adoption of crypto and potentially some of the options with that. Yeah, and then we're going to cover a couple of really specific topics. Um, the question of first-time home buying, should I buy a single-family home or should I buy a multi-unit property? We're going to we're gonna debate that for a little bit. And then we're going to go into what to expect if you're going to buy your first home in 2022. Getting beat up. Getting just massacred out there. And we're going to talk about Chandler's new shirt. New shirt, who dis? Um, to start out like we always do, what do you got going on, Chandler? I'll let you go first. Usually I go first. Um, well, I'm super excited. I firmed up on a development site in the South Shore. Um, so that's officially firm, Congrats. done deal, approved. Um, it's as of right, which is super cool. We're going to do some subdivisions so that we can phase it out. And we're actually going to do the stack townhouse model, which we've talked about a little bit on the show before. And I don't know if people know what it means, but they kind of look like townhouses from the outside, but there's actually, you know, rental units inside. So... Uh, the cool thing about it is it'll be wood frame construction, so it's a little more economical. Because it's the townhouse form, your builder options are a little bit more, um, like you can, you can get a smaller scale builder to do it. And because we're doing them in phases, like you do six townhouses and then you do six more, it's a bit more manageable of a project. So um, yeah, pretty pumped about that. It'll be about 40 to 50 units, depending on how we structure the townhouses and probably built in three phases. Can you share what you spent on the land? Yeah, we're, we're somewhere probably like around 14, 15 a door. Okay. Um, you know, paying a bit more just because uh, there's an existing structure on there that's going to generate some revenue in the meantime. Yeah. It made it easy to finance. And there's an option there because of the sizing. We, we talked about this before. When you get a smaller scale project, your price per door is actually more valuable, where that can yeah. be phased out individually. Like one of the phases is going to be individual PIDs for each townhouse. So one run of six townhouses that are going to have a main unit plus a basement suite mm-hmm. could actually be sold off individual. So that land is worth conservatively 60000 a unit for those townhouse yeah. plus HST, right? So um, while fourteen fifteen a door isn't usually that exciting in the context of the financing, the ability to repackage it, and the scale of the project, uh, it's a pretty good, pretty good one. Yeah, I'd say that that's a pretty reasonable deal. That's kind of what things are trading for down there. I mean, maybe a little bit less, but like realistically, like you said, there's some options there. And it's also there's as of right, like, so not a dollar spent for yeah. planning and, and, as and of right, like we could pull a permit. There's a building yeah. on there already. Yeah. There's multiple things. Yeah. Um. So that's good you firmed up on that. You got a couple other good things on here. Yeah, I uh, close on a six unit on, well, a week from today, a week from yesterday. Nice. Um, so closing on that six unit. So that's one where... Um, I did. I got a good deal on the property and did some kind of creative things moving around with financing to effectively get into the property with no money out of pocket. So super pumped about that. I think we're going to um, do a Patreon episode on that. Oh, yeah. We'll call out on that. We're going to start doing Patreon. That one there, we're going to do an yep. episode especially on how he was able to get into a 16 property with no money down. Yep. Um, 
And then I've got an offer agreed to in principle on that 12 unit that I've been uh, going after for a while. Uh, we've ironed out all the terms. So those documents are out there waiting for a signature and then preparing the offer documentation for that combination site that I mentioned, nine PIDs, many different types of buildings. Um, so hopefully going to get that rolling um, here shortly too. So That's exciting. you got lots of things going on. Yeah, yeah, they're all kind of small, like a little bit mixed bag of stuff, but that is what makes it interesting and kind of fun. So yeah. what about you? What do you I have going on? don't have very much exciting stuff going on. Um, <laughs> I doubt that, yeah. You got yeah. stuff. Um, but like, so I've talked about a hundred times on here. I'm de- working on these land deals, and I've been mentioning it to you off the mic. It's just I'm struggling a little bit with the numbers because I'm trying to make the transition now from like these small resale wood frame buildings that I'm buying and going into a new construction build, mm-hmm. uh, and whether it be a high-rise building or like a low-rise or mid-rise wood, I'm finding the numbers a lot tighter than I expected. Yeah. Like the cost of construction is quite high, and so I'm realizing now that I either need to basically GC and build it in-house um, to be able to make a decent amount of money, because the problem is the land. Like a lot mm-hmm. of land that you've purchased, you were fortunate you got it at really strong rates where it's like they weren't sold necessarily as development sites. Yeah. Uh, so you get these great deals on them. Now I'm trying to buy like an approved site because I'm hoping to get started with something sooner. And so I'm really struggling with the cost of the approved site plus the cost of construction and what the end value numbers are coming out to. It's just I've been kind of getting flaky. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm starting to think I might just pull trigger on one and try and work it through and, and see if I can make it work. Um, but I, I really do see that I might have to build it myself um, to be able to save, like to get yeah. that lift, right? Where I'm starting out, I need the lifts out of these properties. Um, I just, can you GC so. something that uh, of that scale? Because uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't go too crazy. I'd probably go to like a thirty unit to start. Right, right, right. right? Okay. So that that I could pull off, and then have to roll into something bigger, um, or potentially signing on with like there's man- project management companies mm-hmm. that could be involved. That'd be a little less costly, and it'd be like a fixed couple hundred grand. I know what it's going to cost me, yeah. and they can be involved. Um, I also went to Moncton. I don't know if I mentioned in the last one. I went to Moncton last week no. and uh, looked at some multi units there their price per door was lower. Like there's multiple places in Canada that their price per door is lower, but there's kind of a reason. Um, and theirs being that their property taxes are very, very high. Yeah. Um, and it dramatically impacts the, their property taxes are about a little over, I think double what it is in Halifax and Halifax is already very high. Um, and hmm. so it has a huge impact on the bottom line yeah, no and the appraisal values on the, on the units, obviously. Um, but right. the, the city of Moncton is having a meeting about this in about two weeks to reduce it. And I'm sure we, I think we've talked about it before. There was a news article that they're looking to reduce theirs. Um, they are well overdue. We, we made some comments about Halifax is increasing theirs, but we're still like literally half of what they are. Um, so anyways, long story short, right now, Monks and I was struggling to find being a great deal. Um, but potentially in the future, uh, they have the nice thing in Moncton, I think was that the structures, they have a lot of like mid rise 30, 40 unit buildings, mm-hmm. which we don't have as much of here. I feel like it's no, either a lot, there's a ton of like sixes six and twelves and twelves. Yeah. And then it goes straight to like the massive hundred unit buildings. Yeah. Like yeah. we don't have this mid rise, low rise. Not um, much of it. No. No. And you're seeing the new ones now that are getting built outside by big companies, but they're all owned by REITs and they're relatively new and they're massive like two hundred unit buildings. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's going on. More so in the background, I've been just working on my investments. Uh, we've talked about it a few times, obviously, with things with oil and gas. Um, and right now with interest rates going up, it's take it's beating a lot of things up. So I've been just trying to spend a lot of time and energy kind of getting my plays strategized there. Um, and like, don't want to buy banks. Cause I think with all these rates going up, there's gonna be a lot of people defaulting and there's gonna be some issues that they face immediately. Um, but in the long run, obviously they'll, they'll pan out enough having made a lot of money. Yeah. Um, but in the short term, I'm trying to figure out what the next play is there. Yeah. Obviously we're not, uh, financial 
advisors. Yeah, exactly. Not financial advisors, advisors, but I think I think we can set up a yeah Patreon. I was gonna say same thing on on the Patreon. What I will what we intend to do uh, is some of the trades that I'm making or the investments I'm making. I'd be happy to share them on the Patreon, and if somebody's interested in following that, that's your own decision to do so. Um, And 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 you can kind of hear my logic and and go with it if you're interested. Um, And then the last thing right now that I'm working on uh, is we're trying to build kind of an in-house software to help manage the project management for construction and renovation of the buildings. So when we get a building, there's yeah. an automatic se- system in place that will tell you everything you need to do. Uh, for us specifically, it'll give contact lists. It'll automatically send out notifications. You can tie your, your subcontractors into it, your own staff into it. Um, and this is in an effort for me to be able to operate the business a little bit further, like more remotely. Yeah. Um, and then also eventually I want to be able to offer that out to people as well. Uh, yeah, there have been a few companies it. try to build out apps for project management like that. Um, the tricky thing is sometimes they're almost larger than what you need and they're hard to customize to your own thing. So yeah. it's nice to have something that you can then apply to your own in-house. And then if you have local contractors to be able to tie right into that is, is I think, like, yeah, my obte- my objective with it is basically to create one that does the burr model. Right. Like there's so many people doing that. And I found yeah. every software, like you said, is either for a massive scale mm-hmm. um, or like a very like basic. Mm-hmm. I feel like this would be like a nice mid-level and there's a lot of people doing it. It wouldn't be anything crazy, but it would just allow you to kind of keep pace. And so if yeah. you have two or three of them on the go, I find it already starts to get a little bit funky. Like, oh, crap, I forgot to order the doors for X building. Right. Right. Um, and even like able to prioritize things, what should happen first. Yeah, yeah, that'd be a really sick feature. Um, that is the sort of stuff that we're also going to provide on the website once we start building out the website, which is another thing we got to yeah. get rolling on too. Yeah, um, that, well, that's underway, so that should be here soon. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's that's pretty much what I have going on right now. Nothing too exciting deal-wise. I'm hoping to pull trigger on something soon because I do have uh, some refinances coming in. This might be the first time that I haven't spent my refinance before it's anywhere close to coming in. Man, I'm sitting on some cash now too because I'm, I've got to show a lot of liquidity for the build. Oh yeah, and it's driving me insane because I'm like I normally it's don't like to keep any money. Yeah, especially money's going down every day right now. Yeah, right. So I'm like I do not want to have this money in my bank account. I want to be buying more property. However, I need that money for when the build starts. Not suggesting living paycheck to paycheck, but live paycheck to paycheck. <laughs> yeah, it just means you have to go and get more paychecks. So it's <laughs> like that good motivator. Um, yeah. The uh, the other thing I thought was kind of cool. By the time people are watching this, we'll be almost through Q1 of this year. Pretty Perhaps. crazy. Seemed like just yesterday we were doing our New Year's Eve special. You're stressing me out. Optimal stress, man. You got to have a little stress to feel motivated. That's insanity. It's almost through quarter one of 2022. I think everyone should think for a second. Are you happy with how things are going? I feel like I've missed all of Q1. I don't know where I was, but I wasn't here. Yeah, it time time flies by. And, you know, like we've always said, it's not a race and you just have to kind of set these like micro, micro goals and you know, look at what you're doing, but it's a good time to check in one quarter down. It's now a race. You're one quarter down. Yeah. <laughs> Start it's running. Now, yeah. So, um, I always find it's nice to check in on that stuff. News wise. I mean, things aren't, aren't getting any better over in the Ukraine. Um, and that's caused a lot of uncertainty in the oil market. Yeah. We had a spike up here. Was it last week or two weeks ago to $126 a barrel. Right. Um, it's back down as of today, $106 a barrel. And I think that yeah. was basically the Middle East saying that they have some oil that they're able to yeah. provide to us in the immediate term. Um, yeah, I think OPEC is going to release or, or ease some limits on certain producers yeah. in order to you know, supply the market and, and keep pricing down a little bit. Because, yeah, it was getting dicey. I don't know what, depending on where you're listening, here it was up to like a buck 86. Yeah, I right just came from Montreal, it was 220. 220? Man. Yeah, BC is over two bucks. 
Uh-huh. It's so wild because now it's like, oh, it's going to go down like 10 cents. And we, we all go rush out and buy it as if it's such a great deal. But damn, man, that's expensive. It's finally, it's gotten to a point where I'm actually considering an electric car. <laughs> yeah, probably you and everyone else. And now electric cars yeah. are going to be, as if it's not hard enough to get a car anyway. But I'm thinking the same thing. My uh, RAV4 is a really nice hybrid. My, my client this morning said he has a Model 3 and it cost him six bucks to fill up for 450 kilometers of range. Well, now it's nine bucks, so joke's on him. Yeah. And yeah, that's crazy. That's, uh, yeah, well, I mean, this is the the thought, too. There's been a lot of great news coming out about like alternative energy sources and that sector, but it takes years, right? So in oh yeah. the interim... Um, we're still on oil and gas. We're still on oil and gas, heavily so, and, and petroleum products in general and all the forms they take for the foreseeable future, and they're going to have a place in, in the future no matter what people want to, you know, utopian believe or whatever, but... Um, some of these other things hopefully will be brought to market sooner because of this situation. Um, I heard another rumor, and maybe you saw this. This I think one I, sounds insane. You're gonna yeah, scare so um, shout out to Laird who sent this to me. Uh, it was circulating on Twitter. It was an image that said someone had insider information from some mortgage contacts about two things. One, that the down payment for investment properties was going to increase to 35%. And the second one was that down payments could not come from HELOCs or borrowed sources, effectively. And number two, well, it's kind of like always the case. Like you, HELOCs were secured uh, against a property, so they were always sort of fair game, but you weren't technically supposed to be using borrowed funds to be providing down payments regardless. Yeah. So I think that'll kind of be navigated in an easy way. Like I think there'll be workarounds for that. The 35% down... I don't know, man. If, if it's true, it's a game changer um, because it's hard enough to get the 25% down. You're very opportunistic and, and lucky when you can get 15% down. You hope that maybe if the scenario goes great, you put 25% down and refinance to 85-15. If you can only like refinance to 65-35. I guess it could happen, eh? That Anything could happen, man. Anything could happen. I could see it because now they're like looking on average. The prices are way higher. The caps are way lower. I could see it making sense. This is what they already do in places like Ontario. Like they don't, the rule isn't 35% down, but none of the properties with cash flow make any sense at anything less than 35% down. So everyone just has to do that. Like when I talk to any of my clients, they're like, yeah, we're used to doing 35 to 50 down on our places. Man. Well, but here's the thing though. Those two items, item one, item two, move in opposite directions, right? Like it's like, you got to put more money down and you can't get it from refinancing properties. Well, yeah, but it's if like, you, well, it, there's a challenge. There's no right? way for them to follow the no borrowed funds one. Like that's, well, if, if, you have any other, if, you have, funds, yeah. if you have any other loans and you're officially like, well, and you have also, a car payment, well, you borrowed the funds against your car to go buy the place. Yeah, yeah. There's also um, when you refinance for uh, the fact that you put a capital investment in the property, you're effectively paying yourself back. Yeah. Right? Uh, so I think that'd be a hard one to police, like you said. But I was actually hoping you were going to shoot that down and be like, there's no way that's possible. There's no way they're allowed to put 35% down. I'm, I'm, that I'm be- thinking that there's no way. And then I'm sitting here going... Else. There might be a way because the fact that the there's just the squeeze is getting so crazy where people are just not cashing on these places, and the appraisals aren't coming in anyways. And I'm seeing a bunch of my clients have to make up the difference. But my question is always like, who would be the one that wants this, right? Who's advocating for this? Is it major lenders? Is it yeah? Oh yeah, hundred percent. It's, it's banks and then the insurance. Like they're they're trying to do some risk mitigation. Like that's you think so? Eh? Oh, hundred percent. It's getting yeah. think about all these places now. Like so, you look at a big part of Canada. Like rental units sell for three hundred grand plus a door. And then you got, again, your average rents need to get over then with the interest rates going up the way they are. We just saw this. I'm renewing at a B lender and it came in over 5% for prime with like mm-hmm. their best rate. Um, so to then cash flow against that, 
you need like literally eighteen hundred bucks. Yeah, that's not including anything else. Like yeah, the mortgage, yeah, that's like the mortgage, a break even. That's the mortgage a break payment even, on this yeah. place. This is a three seventy five, uh, which would be slightly more than what a unit sells for now, and the payment was coming out at sixteen hundred dollars. That's pre mm-hmm. anything else. That's like, no no insurance, yeah. no utilities, no management, no maintenance. Yeah. yeah. So like once you put all that in, you need to get eighteen hundred bucks, and they're like, okay. There is so many brand new units now at twenty two hundred dollars a month in every single city or twenty four hundred dollars a month. There, I think everyone's kind of seeing the right in the wall. Like there might be a point where we have the people, but we don't have the people at twenty two hundred dollars a month. Mm-hmm, Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. This is where like my my stress well, comes to with income not growing as fast as rents. Yeah, that's exactly income not growing as fast as rent. So by doing by doing this, it's going to slow that massive price price growth that you're seeing on these uh, based on falsified rents. Right, like people are like downtown. not falsified rents, but like unachievable pretend. moving yeah, forward. Yeah, yeah, Like people are just not all time high rents that aren't sustainable. People want to sign the lease, yeah. yeah, unsustainable rents. They just they want to sign the lease, but they're going to be unable to because they can't come up with the money to do it. Man. And then you're going to have to drop your rents. The other thing that's interesting is there's all this 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 program just came out through CMHC uh, targeting affordability, where you'll be able to refinance affordable units up to ninety five percent. Yeah, they're putting in some pushes here. So. And having a chance to really think about this, so what are they trying to accomplish? Basically, you can go 95 to 5 on affordable units, yeah. or you can go 65, 35 on not affordable units. Makes it a lot more interesting to go affordable. Yeah. And you're always going to have renters at affordable. You might yeah. not always have renters at the high end. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. The other thing that makes me believe it might happen is when you think about it, like my parents have told me about times when like, oh, I remember we looked at a rental property. It was six units, blah, blah, blah. Uh, we could get in for zero down. Mm-hmm. Like, that was a thing at yeah. one point in time. You could get in with zero down, yeah, 3% yeah. down, 5% down. The ebbs and flows. 40 years ago. Yeah. And then they added in. They started, okay, now I need a minimum of 10, minimum of 20, minimum of 25. Mm-hmm. So, like, I'm like, this This kind of makes sense. As the prices go up, they're kind of increasing the requirement for down payment. And it's a big risk mitigation thing as well. Yeah. So, watch out for that news. We don't want to fear monger and put something out there because it could also be complete nonsense Means I, you I, have to buy now call uh, us buy as many places as you can let's leverage yeah, it to the max get it now. <laughs> get those refinances going um but i i talked to uh my buddy and he's like you know what these images come out every now and again memes or whatever you want to call them and be like oh minimum down payments going from five percent to ten percent on residential homes and then another never actually there happens. is a ton it's of false complete, news. Yeah. yeah and then there's also the wording of that it's like, all right 35 percent on investment properties now, people My use primary it. residence is a 24 unit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but people sometimes say investment unit to mean one thing and then say income property to mean another. Oh, like yeah. they, they have put out a lot of, when, when the last federal election happened, there was a lot of talk around targeting absent, you know, out of country owners, mm-hmm. right? And calling those investment properties, people who were mm. not residents. Parking um, cash, basically. Yeah. 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 So maybe that's more targeting that sort of thing. Uh, don't know, but so that'll be interesting news when it comes out. Um, there was a Biden executive order to effectively, I mean, it didn't say a whole lot, but we're switching to crypto here for a second. I don't know if you saw this, but he gave an executive order to sort of look at the regulation, the uses, um, and even the idea of a digital currency for the U.S. Um, so all these oversight effectively uh, and legitimizing, for lack of a better term, of the crypto um, coin space. And at first the market responded really well because part of crypto's adoption challenges have been with the idea of like, is it legitimate? Is it not? 
How's the government going to treat it? And for the average person, especially maybe of a certain age that's not especially familiar or up on the crypto space, um, the lack of a government sign-off has maybe held the, held the coins back. Big time. And the Big initial time. news sounded like, all right, well, if the government's going to get involved, provided they don't squash everything, they are going to legitimize this space. It's the same thing about how, you know, when marijuana was legalized or de- decriminalized, whatever you want to call it, um, it's it actually helped the adoption and made it a place where people felt more comfortable investing into it, right? Why are they doing this? Well, I think they're doing it because they have to. They are realizing that they're being left behind. And you can either, like, you can either bury your head in the sand and pretend this is not going to be a thing, or you can get into the space and bring some regulation to it. Also, if you look at the big case of SEC versus Ripple, like, there's, they're trying to find this legislative arm, like, who is going to oversee the crypto space? Because maybe it shouldn't be the SEC, maybe it should be some other branch that's monitoring this stuff. And there's been adoption by other countries just with like balancing ledgers and like using some of these coins um, to expedite transactions. It seems odd that the American economy would not bring these this sort of currency into their banking system. You know, two things. Full disclosure: we are invested in crypto. Yeah, um, totally. And, and I didn't know how to read this news at first either. Would you say it's similar to like the marijuana thing? I feel like it's an item of either they have to go down the path of making it super illegal and trying to police the crap out of it and spending a ton of money and making it this hell-bent riot between people and the government, or yeah. they try and figure it out, legitimize it a bit, and tax the crap out of it. Uh, I mean, there's probably a big section of it that, that's the latter. Um, but also, um, you know, I got contacted a, a guy that I talked to a lot about this stuff mentioned that something like 40 million people in the U.S. are either employed in crypto in the cryptocurrency space or what? invested uh, and, and actively trading. Okay. That's a big percentage okay. of the population, and it seems to reason that it's only going to grow. Yeah. Um, so I think they're trying to get on board to this space because it's going to continue to operate whether the government intervenes or not. So they're trying to get involved. So initially that caused a little bump in the favor of, of uh, cryptocurrencies because – it's like, all right, this is a step towards maybe broader scale uh, adoption. Yeah. yeah. And then people sort of step back and say, okay. Wait a second, is this good? <laughs> you know, when has extra legislation and, and government oversight been beneficial? It's no Not longer really the sure. And it pulled some things back a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think it's going to bring some sanity maybe to the crypto space. Of like, you know, the coin that you're invested in or the, the product that you're investing in that space has to actually have use. Yeah. It can't just be a gimmick like just running for the sake of these pyramid scheme ones are the ones that yeah. get registered and they say they're going to do all these things and they never come through with it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like maybe the coins that actually serve value within the existing banking framework are going to be the ones that hold value. Potentially. Yeah. I, I think it makes sense. Um, some of the things I've heard even in the recent months of just like how much illegal stuff takes place through crypto, it's kind of crazy and I can see yeah. why they'd want to be involved in that. Um, and I think it will legitimize, like, legitimize it. Um, the biggest thing, I guess, for me that I think of when I hear about this is I'm like, I think it might be too late now. I feel like a lot of the investments have passed. The exciting, crazy ones and like the big growth moments. And if you're going to be a, like a founder, I feel like a lot of potential has been lost. But I guess on the flip side, with things becoming legal, there's also not legal, but like, again, like you said, adopted. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a lot more opportunity as well that gets brought to the table to, to create businesses around the yeah. new policies and expectations for it. I mean, if you look at any major market space, there ends up only being like four or five players. 
yeah. right? Like in the software beverage game, there's Pepsi and Coke. Yeah. Right. You know, even now, like all of the beer companies have kind of consolidated. Like if yeah. you go across major industries, especially consumer based, kind of the cream rises to the top Always. and you might have three or four major players. Yeah. Um, so they, all these coins, all these altcoins can't really have that much use probably long term. I don't think. They're going to melt you know, away. I'm, I'm naive to that space. But at least in terms of widespread adoption, in the same way that everyone references things off the American dollar or a couple other main currencies of record. Yeah, yeah there's all these other currencies, but there's going to be a couple that um, end up being where people park their money in times of uncertainty and all these things. Yeah. Um, so I think there'll be a separation of widely adopted coins and then these other fringe products. Just how long it takes and, and what this is going to look like and what the bumpy road is going to be towards that. It's going to be really, really interesting. Could yeah. be huge, huge gains. Uh, I think there'll also be, be some massive gains for some people, and there'll be yeah. some massive losses on the other end. There also could be some new emerging federal-based coins. There's going to be a new... There already is a new, like, wealth based on, like... Like, I feel like wealth always been yeah. old school, and there's just, like, this crazy... I saw a yeah. thing, too, about how a lot of these places that have no, like, tax laws based on, like, online incomes and things like that, mm-hmm. like, their populations are booming and their luxury sectors are booming. Because everyone with like crypto money and all that's just like selling, renouncing their citizenship wherever they're from and moving to these different places like Barbados or whatever to get yeah. set up and just set up a little LLC and take all their money out. Well, also think how many like billions of dollars there are around the world that is not currently invested in the crypto space because they don't feel comfortable in that space. And the people handling their that's money trillions. are not yet. Yeah, trillions. trillions of dollars. Right. So you have this little crypto space. If it reaches that point of widespread adoption, and all of those trillions of dollars go into it. It's going to be psycho. There's going to be a run there. But uh, we are not investment advisors, so who the heck knows? Yeah. <laughs> um, so our new, our new protocol. Yeah. Um, the last thing we had on here, and we've talked about it multiple times because it is so prevalent, is inflation hitting 8% in the U.S. And on the same note, interest rates are continuing to rise. I've been harping it. I'm going to keep harping it. If inflation's going nuts, interest rates are going up, and you're seeing every single thing that you touch be more costly and harder to get, something's got to give. And I feel like the general public is starting to change their mind, but I feel like the overall news is saying nothing about it. Like, I feel like the yeah. news, I feel like everyone's kind of like, holy crap, the Ukraine-Russia thing, which is crazy, super sad, all those items. But on the flip side, you also kind of need to watch your bag a little bit uh, and be like, hey, there might be something coming down the pipe here that might cause a serious, serious issue. It's also, if you look back in history, there's been, like, pandemics, war, uh, depression or yeah, war pandemic depression it, it followed a lot, a lot, of, lot of, of booms afterwards a lot of times they follow booms mm-hmm. um just struggling to see how this is going to be a boom because in the we back also of the have day had all at once this is the thing we've had it all at once and back in the day the booms came with a lot of industrial manufacturing and stuff that went into the war yeah um we don't quite work like that anymore like it's not like now it's like everyone's just dropping their job and we're all going to build a factory down in the waterfront and crank out boats now like yeah. that's not a thing also um, everything moves so much quicker that that used to happen over a series of years. And yeah. now with the global economy, things happen super quickly. So we actually have had the boom mm. in the middle mm-hmm. of the pandemic. Like we didn't even wait for the pandemic to end. Mm-hmm. We just boomed simultaneously to it because it used to be, you know, coming out of a recession through fiscal policy, it used to take a long time to get out of that. And now, you know, it happens so quickly, like, we're having the boom and the bust at the same time. It's a very cool, weird thing that's happening. Yeah. Um, last little note, I want to see if you saw this. Yeah. Um, the Ukraine-Russian situation has obviously impacted a lot of corporate brands and how they're responding to the, uh, the war. 
And recently... Their involvement with Russia? Yeah. yeah. McDonald's, PepsiCo, Starbucks, all closed all of their shops in Russia. Kind of effective this week. That's insane. Um, I think... I get, I get what they're doing. Everyone's doing this, where they're shutting down their, their business with Russia, inability to take investments from Russia, no interest. Like, a lot of the billionaires are giving things up that aren't in support of it, and the ones that mm-hmm. are, people are like, you can't do things with us, and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. They're removing the the names from jerseys. Companies are pulling out of there. And so I think, honestly, I think it's a good idea. It's like, instead of going, like, fighting this war with bullets and bombs, let's do it, like, kind of on a, a technology, political, and a business level. Yeah. Um, and, and try and end this in a way that's better. Um, to be honest with you, though, lives will still be lost because there'll be a lot of people that'll go hungry. They can't work at these places. Well, this is the thing, and those corporations are, are, are saying that they are going to take care of their workers, meaning mm-hmm. they're going to continue to pay them at least for a period of time, but how long could that last? And, you know, how do you return... At, at what point does the conflict resolve enough that you're saying, okay, now we're okay to do business back there? And th- this is tricky when you start to combine, you know, international brands in conflicts... Um, I don't know, man. It, it's it's, it's a, boiling out time. to another level. Yeah. I think I think the one that like I'm still thinking about this is like everyone thinks okay, so if it's a war and like 300 soldiers die, like that's terrible. That is a super super bad. But this same thing will have a mad like forcing a country into a depression of that largest scale. Yeah, like there could be a lot more impact on the general population, the average person that lives there, and like the the sickness, the health, like death rates, like it could be as high or worse. Um, and so I think a lot yeah. of people right now on a press basis will be like, oh, this is way better. It's so smart that these brands are doing this and da 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 da, which I don't disagree with 100%. But I think there's also a huge impact that people don't pay attention to. Yeah. It's also a different strategy because in, in the past it was, you know, tariff and trade, like you'd hammer them on those things. Yeah. Um, and you'd make it impossible for them to kind of trade comfortably in the international space. But to remove someone's cheeseburgers and lattes, is yeah. like some new level of no, psychological it's some pers- it's warfare. Some personal shit now. Right? Um, the general public's going to start rioting. It's meant to demoralize the population in a weird... It's yeah. so funny to think of like cheeseburgers as demoralizing people. Um, it could messing. just come up like all the restaurants are going to be super healthy because like, yeah, we got rid of Pepsi. And, <laughs> and, um, They're and ultra fit humans now. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's something to consider too also on your... If you can, for investments, if you're looking at your investments that you have in these companies... Like a lot of these were making like five to ten percent of their oh I think uh, gross McDonald's, incomes in I think it was Russia. eight or nine percent in in Russia and Ukraine she's nuts yeah. when you think about how big McDonald's is in North America and yeah. even internationally like that's a huge portion of their I wouldn't think it would be that much mm-hmm. um, so things to consider obviously when you're making these investments again is looking at what's going on with these companies and there might be a little bit of a pause where it's time to pull back out and see what's going to happen because I think a lot of them their numbers moving forward could get beat, plus there'll be things that are happening here locally that are going to beat them up. It's also slightly ironic because the undercurrent of a lot of this conflict has to do with um, westernization and, it, and its encroachment into, you know, what traditional or, or nationalist Russians would say is their historic identity is, you know, mm-hmm. Russian. And there's nothing more Western and American than Starbucks and McDonald's, <laughs> right? So anyway, um, we're not political scientists either, so we're going to move on to... <laughs> Our topic of the day, and this is kind of especially relevant right now because there's a lot of homeowners out there, um, you know, buying their first property. And whether this has always been their goal or whether they're now looking at this as an objective because of the pricing, they're kind of weighing their options of single family home or a multi-unit property for their first purchase. And we've talked about this a little bit before. Yeah, I think we've touched on this before. We've kind of shared our views a little bit. Uh, We want to go into a little bit deeper because I think this is a question that we get all the time. Uh, and I think it's it's predominantly more like obviously the younger buyers, 
they're trying to get involved and they're trying to, like you said, decide between do you get your rental property or do you get your, your home now, lock that in because the prices are always going to keep going up and then work on the rental property second. There's an intangible to this, no matter what we say, that it's your personal preference. Like yeah. if you just can't live without that house, I mean, that's kind of vetoes everything we say. And if you just can't live without making a rental income, I mean, I understand that. It, that also vetoes everything we say. So um, we're both going to take like a side. Okay. Let's I do think. It. Yeah. And I... I we so the sides, to, 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 to outline the, the rules of engagement here. So <laughs> the sides are either... No punching. Buying... Uh, not the face. <laughs> um, buying a single family home for your first property or buying, say, a duplex. Neil, you have yeah. the floor. Okay. So I'm, I'm team duplex. Um, speaking that that's what I bought first. Well, technically no, actually I lied, but I'm team duplex. And my reason being like right off the hop, number one thing is you're increasing your income. Like when you buy a duplex, you're putting your money in. So yeah, it's, it's locked in just like it would be for a single family home. You can still do your 5% down, 10% down. CMHG Mm -hmm. will still give you mortgage insurance. Um, you have to claim owner occupied. So let's say you do owner occupy that you then get, 50% 50% or even almost 80% of your mortgage payment often covered by the rental income that you have. So now you're paying that small amount plus your utilities. Yeah. Okay. So oftentimes that's cheaper than the rent you were paying. Totally. So you're now banking cash there plus you're making the rental income. So your income on paper has increased plus you have the, the equity in the property and it's easier to control the value creation in that property by increasing the rent, you, by increasing the rent, you can cause direct, like you can force the appreciation of your property. Right. So but we live in a world right now where you can't increase your rent and it's never been harder to be a landlord than in this exact moment. First of all, getting, you know, vacant uh, possession of the property is very challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you'll get one through, um, you know, your right to own or occupy getting that second unit vacant, it's not a slam dunk that that's just going to add so much money to your income because it could be the case that, yeah, they're down there paying $700 a month, you know, utilities included. Yep. And if they're using the water, they're using the heat, that, to say that might cost be... cost more than what they're could, worth. It could actually cost more than what they're worth. And, and yep. you say that in, in jest, but that is a case. So it's not as simple as you are going to be able to increase the rent and improve that cash flow. I agree. Uh, to an extent, I, I don't think that's a frequent answer. Like realistically, if you're buying a duplex... Uh, to live in it, like, well, first of all, we do have a rent cap right now. The rules are lifting, and most places do have an opportunity to basically buy out your other tenant. Uh, in this case, if you're really being that person where you're comfortable living in a rental, you're probably also comfortable to bite the bullet and move into the cheaper unit uh, right. to yeah, get the rental where it needs to be. Yeah. Uh, and then additionally, doing a buyout for the other tenant. You can usually, if you live there, you see the tenant every day, you can have that conversation and give them a buyout to be able to move into it, and you can make some improvements on the property and be able to to increase those rents to where they need to be to help offset it. My other big thing, and like a lot of people, like just to beat up <laughs> what you're about to say, but um, if you look at something like a $300,000 house, which is almost non-existent now, but a $300,000 condo, once you factor in all your payments, your mortgage is 15, 1600 bucks, your condo fees are 300 bucks, your tax, blah, 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 you're paying 2200 a month. Realistically, you're probably coming out of a rent that costs you a lot less than that. Yep. Even if you bought an investment property and didn't move into it, um, mm-hmm. and kept your rental. Like most, like a lot of people I know have rentals around 1300, 1400, uh, or they split a two bedroom for a thousand each. Uh, that will 99.9% of the time be cheaper than you going out and buying a single family versus if you go out, you buy a rental, you can get it to cash flow a little bit. That cash flow is actually going to eat away at your monthly expenses. Plus you're building equity in a property. So you're actually gonna be in a better place sooner to buy another place. 
Well, this was sort of, and I understand your, your way of thinking, and it's been correct for a long time. The challenge is right now, and maybe moving forward, is that single-family homes certainly seem to be appreciating at a faster rate than multi-unit properties, and that's going to continue. All these things, for all the reasons we just talked about, right? So um, historically, like anytime you buy a multi-unit property, you're thinking about your exit strategy. All right, I'm going to be here, I'm going to live in one unit, I'm going to rent the other, and then I'm going to maybe try to get another one. And there was some logic behind that because you live economically, you save some money, you maybe get some lift, you buy another, and so on and so forth. It's now the case where you may get a bigger lift quicker in a single-family home. So if you can bite that bullet of like, yes, my expenses are maybe $1,000 more net per month than if I was in a multi-unit, you could actually be increasing your net worth by $1,000 more than the multi-unit property would be going up. So you you could be appreciating at $4,000 a month, right? So you could be still up net maybe $1,500 compared to if you were in a multi-unit property. And if we're thinking exit strategy, well, you can exit out of that single family home refinance it and still buy another multi-unit property. Also, if you buy the correct single family home, you can still own or occupy the next duplex. This has been yeah. something that I'm, I'm was always concerned about is, you know, you want to buy as many properties with 5% down as possible because of liquidity, available cash, you know. And if you're going from a duplex to another duplex, that is a logical, realistic move. And so lenders like that and they're saying you're fine with 5% down. If you're moving from a $700,000 single-family home and trying to tell the lender that you're moving into a $500,000 duplex, yeah, that's not really realistic. Yeah. But if you're making a smaller first-time home purchase, which is kind of what we're referencing here, where we're, mm-hmm. we're comparing first purchases, you can make a case of, we bought this home for $400,000, uh, and then 12 months later, we're moving into a duplex that's $500,000, and we're going to own or occupy that at 5% down. So that is quite a logical story. If you want to maybe go a little further out of town, get a cheap house, stay there for a year, but still pick up a multi-unit property the next year, I think you'll be able to do it with 5% down. Yeah, I, I agree. I, it, um, the other thing is, too, is something to consider when you're looking at buying a house. It might be what you consider an increased lifestyle. Like, it might be a little nicer to live in a single family than it is a duplex uh, going yeah. through it. So, the, and the other one I think that's worth considering, even though I said I'm team rental, on a single family, you can do house hacking. Like I have a lot of yeah. younger clients like, look, I don't really want to buy a duplex or duplexes can be expensive. Like, yes, homes are appreciating faster, but in the same neighborhoods, a lot of times a single family bungalow and a single family bungalow with a basement apartment, the ba- bungalow with a basement apartment is going to sell for a hundred grand more. In some cases, yeah. Then depending on the condition, yeah. which makes it harder for them to access. Uh, so they get the single family and they do room rentals. Uh, mm-hmm. That's quite common. I think somebody on our team actually did that. Um, and uh, shout out Tanner. But yeah, so I think there's an option there. I still really like the rental idea because it also gets you in the game immediately. I find once you get a single family, it's hard to not then kind of consume the lifestyle, which becomes, okay, so now you're in a single family, you're in a single family neighborhood. Now you're getting a new vehicle. Now you're getting all the upgrades for your house. Now you want a new kitchen. Now you want all this. You're like, well, it's my single family home. I'm going to mm-hmm. go ahead and do these things, which do add value to the house. But a lot of times, a $70,000 kitchen doesn't add $70,000 to your house. And then they make you a little soft when you're going like, what do I have to live in next? Like, oh, I don't want to downgrade here. And you know? then that's yeah. also your other thing is it's really hard to then go from a single family into a multi-unit property to make that change. Whereas if you yeah. start in a multi-unit, you understand that you get the business. It kind of puts a little bit of oomph in you. You get used to having a little bit of elbow grease in there. And then you always get to upgrade. And you get that feeling mm-hmm. of upgrading. So it kind of sets the tone and kind of gives you, I feel like that, that, I feel like it also gives you motivation because you're like, I don't want to live here for more than two years. So you're like, yeah, I'm going to bust my butt to get through this place and get to the next one. Yeah. I feel like um, there may be opportunities now to buy single family homes for less 
than duplexes that are actually going to be more modest than some of the duplexes and people yeah. realize I'm going to keep this single family home because keeping a single family home now with the rate of appreciation and the rate of the rents um, is becoming much more palatable or it used to be like, Oh, if I, you know, single family home is not really worthwhile to rent. I'll just sell it. Yeah. Now I think people are going to keep those longer. So I think the ability to, you know, move from a single family home, but still keep it and rent it is, is stronger than it ever was. Plus, you know, integration of secondary suites, which are becoming really prevalent. You can really upgrade these single family homes. Now, if that's something you want to do, I think that's actually a really small, smart alternative to buying the duplex that might be $550,000. Well, if you can find the right bungalow for 400 grand and put a basement suite in there legally, you could end up ahead. We had guests on the show that did that also. I was going to say that best case, you buy a single family home and you put an apartment in the bottom. Yeah. So there's a nice hybrid, but you touched on something there, which I think is really interesting. Uh, we're kind of playing devil's advocate on both sides of this because I think it's, it is a case by case scenario and you can make a really good argument uh, in the right context for either. But one of the things I ask people when they talk about this is, What's your spousal situation? Mm. Because you may have different priorities in terms <laughs> of what your living space are, you know, and um, it's maybe easier <laughs> to do some of these things while you're you're single and in that part of your life. You're laughing here, but it, it's true. Uh-huh. You're supposed, it's, it's super, super, super important. If you want to be a landlord, especially a live-in landlord, your spouse needs to be all in with it. Yeah, 100%. I forget it. I'm laughing because I forget about this and I haven't really had to consider this uh, during my my positions. But a lot of my good close friends who are in that mm-hmm. position, I'm like, do this, do that, do that. You got to make this move. You got to make this move. And he's like, yeah, yeah no, we, we, we're not we're not putting a basement apartment in the house. And yeah. I'm like, why not? And I'm like, well, we don't really want to have somebody living in the house with us. Which I get, man. Which okay. I can, yeah, yeah, I can totally, I can appreciate and respect. Um, but at a certain time in your lives, if you're both into that, it can set you up for, you know, life, right? You do a couple savvy investments if you're willing to you know bite the bullet for a little while and people are increasing like well if we're going to have to be in a modest home anyway yeah we might as well try to get something that's really advantageous because our generation i'm a little older than you but they're now saying that we're likely to move four to seven times the average through person your whole our, lifetime yeah yeah through our adult life through properties something like four to seven times why because we need to upgrade properties Right, which we get a lift, we buy another. It's not like back in the day where our parents bought like one home, then bought a second home and stayed there forever. Now people buy their first home, uh-huh. buy their second home, buy their third home, stay there for a while, later downsize to a condo. Right. Uh, so people are realizing okay. that these homes aren't forever. Um, so maybe we tough it out for a little bit of time and go to the next home and the next home and the next home. Yeah. You know, that's awesome. I'm just thinking about that. It'd be weird if you never owned a rental before, think you want one. Yeah. buy it, move into it, and your life is literally hell because you hate dealing with tenants or you have a bad tenant. You assume a bad tenant from the previous person yeah. and there's a ton of noise being like made and things like that that just drive you nuts. So yeah, there's definitely, I say this to a lot of people, you got to, like you said, the situation-based thing, you got to be mentally prepared and really have the desire to do it because mm-hmm. by no means is it just like a passive income like a lot of people will say it is uh, and be prepared that if you make that decision, it might not be super pleasurable for the first little while. Mm-hmm. Um, and also be prepared to always have your exit strategy ready to go. Yeah. Uh, so you can make a move. Even if it means just you buy a duplex, you move in, you're like, I absolutely hate this. Rent the units and move into a back into an apartment by yourself. Yeah. And I just think in this market right now with the rate that single family homes are appreciating and with the um, you know, cost of, of two unit dwellings, like, yes, the second unit will offset your, your income. But the lift you can get off these single family homes in a really short time. Makes it interesting. Assuming you're comfortable with the cash flow. 
yeah, yeah, you got to carry that cash flow, but your lift in, in 12 to 18 months could be could be significant. So a couple opposing points there. I'd love to hear what people have had success with. I'd be curious to hear out there if anyone did a good job of buying a single family home and then went on to buy rentals. Because now that I think about it... You did the same thing. You did live in two Yeah, rentals. yeah, I did live... I can't think of a single person I know that owned a single family house and then really got into rentals unless we're talking... You know, then when they were 40 and very established in business, they circled back and bought maybe larger scale rentals. Can you think of anyone like young who? I have a client who did. He bought, he didn't get heavily into rentals. He's only bought one since he bought his house. Um, But he bought a single family, but he bought new construction right before things boomed. And Mm -hmm. so he got a massive lift on the new construction. Then he was able to pull out a HELOC, utilize that to buy a duplex, renovate the duplex up um, and kind of go from there. I'm trying to think who else. I I don't know. Like you said, it's, it's tough. I also found like he did the same thing. He renovated up the house um, and, and did some work. I think he listens to, so I'm yeah. probably going to get a text from this. <laughs> but it's yeah, hard like, not I don't to. Want, I don't want to live in a duplex now. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you just, you're exactly, you don't really want to live in the duplex um, and you get comfortable in your current space. Um, even I think could say one of my staff, he, he made the joke a couple days ago and it was like, yeah, like we bought a house and now we're starting to slowly crawl into the basement, even though we said we were going to turn that into a rental unit. It's kind of mm-hmm. nice having a rec room. Mm-hmm. And so now it's like, oh, maybe not. Yeah, you got to capitalize when you're the hungriest. Yeah. Um, so that's interesting. Again, comment, give us some feedback as to which you've done or which you think you want to do. Um, no wrong answer. It's case by case, but interesting yeah. arguments on both sides. I'm, st- I'm still for rental. Yeah, I, so I think I think, I think it sets, <laughs> I think the mindset gets made by going rental. I think I think you've, you've, you've forced yourself in right. a situation. I think that's, what, that's why I like the rental is your hand's now forced. You have yeah. to then move forward. You jump in and then you figure out how to swim. Exactly. Otherwise, like you're in the lounging chair and you're like, oh, I'll get in later. Exactly. Yeah. Um, we are going to touch on one more topic mm-hmm. uh, that we didn't cover at, at the beginning. And this is what to expect if you're buying in 2022. Losing, I had some people lose reach all your up. hair. Look at me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, that was if you're buying in 2019, Neil. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's three years in. Yeah. Uh, we've had this question like, hey, what should I expect when I'm buying this year? So. We're going to do that in a second, but you've got some question, a question there that you mentioned. Yeah, I had a question message to me, um, to us, and it was basically on the same note of rentals and all that. And I actually, like I said, went to a lunch today, had the exact same question. And it's, do we incorporate now? Oh, like we right. want to buy rentals. Yeah. Do we incorporate to do it? Um, my immediate answer is if you're buying your first or one rental property, unless it's big, no. Yeah. Uh, just Do not do it. For the simple fact of like the complexity of it, like you're yeah, adding no point to it. a layer of complexity. You are the only one and only shareholder. If there was any legal issues, it's coming at you no matter what you do. The company company's not old enough to carry any of its own credit. Um, and it's an extra filing at the end of the year. It's an extra tax return at the end of the year. You have no savings on taxes because they still pay the highest rate of tax in a property holding company. There's really nothing that's too exciting for doing it. Holding it personally, you can still write off your mileage. You can still write off your expenses. Mm-hmm. You still claim your rental income. Like there's, it just doesn't make sense to do it. And additionally, you might get into it and find that you're not interested. And you're like, oh crap, I spent an extra two grand to incorporate an extra 1500 bucks on a tax return. And I had all this other bull crap to do. And I had to get special bank accounts. And I found grade A lenders, if it's in a company name, sometimes they're not interested in being involved or they have mm-hmm. other stipulations or yeah. higher expectations for down payments or lower refunds. Yeah, you probably have to do annual reporting for your corporation that has nothing going on. Yeah, literally. It's so like it's it's a huge pain in the butt until you're like, okay, if you do one and you're like, all right, I'm ready to roll in this. I'm going to go crazy with this. I want to start buying one every year and then go nuts. Then I'm like, yeah, go for it. You, you can do it on your second one, go for it because uh, you're going to start doing it because I, I did face the issue now where I started and I bought my first two or three 
personally, and I wanted to roll one of them because it's a development site into a company, and I did have to pay capital gains, and I did have to pay detransfer mm-hmm. tax again. So there is some negatives. Like if you are thinking that, like you do have to pay detransfer tax to then, even though you own the company and you own the property, to transfer it into your company, which you yep. own 100% of, you still have to pay 1.5% against the mm-hmm. current value of the property. And so in my case, I face this problem because I've owned the plot place for three or four years. It's tripled in value. When I rolled it in, like my lawyer is like, like, what's the appraised value? And I'm like this. And he's like, you literally have to pay a capital gains bill for mm-hmm. selling this to your company. To yourself. Even yeah. though I'm realistically not going to get any money for it, I have to pay that big capital gains bill plus detransfer tax on that sale price because the sale price is going to be pretty much what you're appraised or slightly below. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about a very unique scenario though, right? For a particular property that you had to roll into your corp for a specific reason. Like I've got a number of, you know, residential family homes, duplexes in my personal name that there'll never be a reason that those need to get rolled into my corp. Exactly. Oh, and that's the other right. thing I would so, say. Realistically, most of these places, you're not going to need to roll into a corp anyways. Yeah. Um, so it's like you wouldn't you wouldn't face that. But that would be the one negative I would say that you could potentially face. Um, so yeah, that that's something that I don't think is, is worth doing unless you're, you're getting serious and you're ready to make the move. As soon as the bank says... more expensive too. Yeah, as soon as the bank says you have to do commercial financing, then incorporate. Until yeah. they tell you to have to do commercial financing, do not incorporate is my yeah. two cents. Yeah, I and I don't know if you've had any liability issues. I have had some stuff, so I can see the value in it, it getting there. But again, when you only have a, a few properties, I, I suspect you're not going to have that issue. And it, it's really just, it's not worth it off the hop. Um, yeah. And then, yeah, we he had some ask about some tax questions. Uh, we have somebody that's going to come on and just talk shop about taxes yeah. uh, for both just I think probably business and then also the the rental property aspect of things. All right, let's dive into this as our last topic today. What to expect if you're buying in 2022? Neil, kick us off. Getting number one. beat to shit. Like you're going to first <laughs> have to fight people to get into the place and then you're, you're going to see your agent fight another agent in the driveway. Yeah. Well, let's go through a nice little list. Well, we have a nice little <laughs> list that makes it a little clear. But that, that's pretty much right. Yeah. So. No, so right off the hop, the number one thing when you are going to viewing, if you get in, because they are literally fully booking, you might have to yep. sit outside and squeeze in between viewings, mm-hmm. is you're going to get like 10 or 15 minutes to see this place. And yeah. it's going to be a high pressure one because you're going to be looking and you're like, I got to bid like crazy. And there's going to be another agent sitting outside with their clients and you're going to be following somebody out the door. Yeah. So A, short viewing windows. We're talking a few days and sometimes just 15 minutes in the property. This isn't a case of where you'll be like, okay, um, you know, Saturday at three o'clock, maybe three to four works for me. It's like, no, no, no. you know, viewing Thursday and Friday and there's a window. Yeah. 815 to 830. We've got to be there. Yeah. Second item. Paying way over asking. Yep. So the stats are showing, I think about 115%. So 15% over ask on average. But that's an average. Honestly, it's going as high as 25 to 35% over. Yep. I think more commonly, especially for single-family homes, that's where it's going. Obviously, if a house is overpriced, it's overpriced. But you got to be prepared that, yeah, you're approved for 500 You should really be looking at houses for like 399 Because you need that room to bid it up. Even potentially lower than that, three, three, 349 Like, it's yep. crazy. Like, be prepared that that sticker price really doesn't mean much. You need to look at some comparables and ask your agent, like, where is this going? Yeah, so what to expect, number two, paying 15 to 35% over the asking price. C, third one, the very, one that stings very, the worst. Very, very disheartening. Yeah. Losing bids. Bids, B- plural. <laughs> big S, big yeah. S. You can be bidding relentlessly, very strong, over ask, great conditions, everything, letters, the whole works, and you can keep losing. Even with a great agent, you can still lose because there's things you just can't necessarily factor in. And some yeah. people are willing to pay way more even then a property's worth. Sometimes they have intangible reasons, like they have family on the street or they need it for a certain reason or if they're on a specific timeline. So you need to be prepared to lose it and not lose steam because mm-hmm. that's just part of the game and there's really 
I don't want to say there's nothing you can do, but but you can. You can it's going to happen. The yeah, reality it's is, it's going to happen. So you need to expect it. You need to prepare. Be prepared for that. Yeah. Fourth item. Uh, speaking of facing competition and waiving conditions. You need to understand that this may happen. You may have the highest price but lose because you have a financing condition and or an inspection condition in there. You need to expect that that conversation will be had between you and your agent about conditions. Exactly. And this is a big one I think that people need to get way more understanding. Being picky now will make your process literally impossible. If you get into a house and you're like, oh, my God, there's a this in the basement and it's going to cost five grand, you kind of just have to stomach that because you need to think in your head, if this house was perfect, would I have gotten it for 435? No, it might go for 475. Right? This is the conversation sometimes that you're having when clients ask about whether or not they should waive inspection. And I'm going to be clear here. An agent cannot advise you to waive an inspection. At least an agent would be dumb to ever give, say, you should waive the inspection. For yeah. liability reasons, I can't say that to a client ever. Yeah. But I'd be remiss in my duties to them if I didn't say, just to so you this. know, in competition, other people are likely possible to waive their inspection clause. Yeah. And that offer will be viewed by the seller as more competitive than an offer that has an inspection clause in there. Yeah. And they ask, well, what does that mean? And I say, well, it could mean all kinds of things. But the question that they often find themselves asking, and, and I pose it to them sometimes directly, is if we do the inspection and we come up with an item here that's $15,000, are you going to walk away from the home? And they say, well, no, probably not. Okay. Then. And then they start to say, well, if that's the case, why am I going to have an inspection? And we talked about this when we were talking about uh, the guys at, at Blue Nose Inspection there. Oftentimes people are bringing them back after they've yep. owned the property. And then you can get this little list like, okay, you know, we, we mentally were prepared for potentially having this work. Uh, we feel we did good due diligence up front. We didn't get an inspection, but now we got it after the fact and we can, and we can, um, hopefully too, you can get a property disclosure statement before you write your offer and yep. hopefully they're honest on there and you can, can kind of get a gauge. But yeah, this is something that you need to start being comfortable to waive. And I had the same conversation with somebody a couple of years ago when it was one of my first clients that did it. And I was like, you're cool with this? He's like, yeah, like in my head, I just expect that I might spend 25 grand. He said, so if I'm paying yeah. 600 for this place, in my head, I'm paying 625. Mm-hmm. And if I don't spend it, bonus. And if I have to, that's what I plan for. Yeah, and they've had that mindset in other markets for quite some time. So that's the fourth item when to what to expect when you're buying in 2022, which is facing con- competition that waives conditions such as financing inspection. The fifth item is meeting your seller's needs first and foremost. And this is something that's becoming very important. Yep. And it's also kind of hard. I, it's It feels crazy. Like, I just gave you $200,000 more than you listed your property for. Yeah, and you're not letting me have the drapes? And you will not let me have the drapes or move in on this day? And they're like, yeah. no, because there's also four more people willing to give me $200,000 and take the dates and allow me to keep my drapes. Yeah, so if you haven't asked your agent or haven't had this conversation with your agent when you're offering, like, what does the seller want for a closing date? Yeah. Right? What are the inclusions in this deal? What That's are they important. You know, you need to uh, expect that those conversations are going to come up and be prepared to accommodate a seller. Even when you think you've done everything you can to accommodate the seller, realize that someone else is going to try to do more to accommodate that seller. Yeah. That's, so. there's And th- again, those are small things, and like I know... Again, this is where a lot of times you have to kind of put aside a lot of the old notions that there was. Like everyone had, like I, I find a lot of my younger clientele has like, oh, my parents told me that I have to get the drapes. I have to get the mirrors. Make sure you include oh, this. Yeah. Make sure you include that. Unfortunately, the market's not what it used to be when they could do that. As it, when it was a, a buyer's market, you can go in and beat them up and be like, I want this date. I want this price. I want this item. Totally. Throw in your dog. Throw in your chairs. Like, And people did all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Now it's quite the opposite. You need to give up everything you can 
to try and convince that seller to Real, go to you. Realtors will get this one. You know, when you do the inspection and there's the inspector and then there's the client <laughs> and then there's like the client's friends or parents or whatever and like a little thing The contractor comes up, uncle. And they go, well, that's something you can go back to the seller about. <laughs> and it's like, shut up. We can't go back to the seller about anything. We're lucky we're here right now. Yeah, we're hoping we they don't back out. Like, <laughs> you kidding me? Like, yeah. you're, you're, you're worried about... An electrical like the, blog or something oh like that. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, again, to recap, what to expect if you're buying in 2022, Neil? Short viewing windows, paying 15 and 35% over asking, losing bids, bids. Plural. <laughs> facing competition that waives conditions, your financing, inspection, all those items, and meeting the seller's needs and uh, well, first and foremost. Yeah, absolutely. So, you probably already know that, but if you're out there... Um, starting the process, that's what you have to look forward to. Uh, any other last thoughts, Neil? We're going to wrap up. Yeah, I, I, I want to end this with not to make it sound like all doom and gloom. I think if you still need a house, there's still opportunities out there. I think there's still buys that are worthwhile making. I think there's some that yeah. aren't. I see some houses, I'm like, I think you're going crazy. But if you intend yep. to stay in that for 20 years, maybe it's not the end of the world or you really want that location, it's not the end of the world. Um, but I think you can still get out there, you can still make bids. And as an investor, you're not too late. I think there's still a lot of run. Uh, yes, rates are going up. Yes, costs are going up. I think things are going to change. But on the flip side, there's a ton of immigration. Uh, and Canada in general looks better and better every day with the world's turmoil, climate turmoil, all the other things that are taking place. So I think we have a lot of strength here and room to go. But you need to be aware of what's going on. And you still need, I think you need to be a little more conscientious. I think you could get away with a little bit more slack before. Now it's time to be a little more astute and a yep. little more on the ball. Think about substitution. Yeah. How standardized is the product that I'm buying? Right? Is this... Are there a thousand of these homes or is this kind of a one of one, right? Yeah. And if it's a one of one, that's where you can swing, make a big swing for the fences. If it's a standardized product, you have to be mindful like that. If there's a, a dip in the market, you may not get that money back. Yeah. So, um, you know, be careful where you, where you put that 35% over asking price bid. 100%. All right. Thanks for listening. Master Keys. Check us out online. Follow us on social media at Master Keys Podcast. Wherever we're now, we're going to start the Patreon. Patreon? I don't know how to say that word. Patreon. Yeah, so we're going to start a Patreon with more in-depth things where we literally go over actual breakdowns of the numbers, uh, some of the investments that we're making, uh, how we're getting into properties with certain structures, whether it be vendor takebacks, zero downs, all these kinds of things. Um, so if you're interested in that, maybe shoot us a message, let, let us know. And also if you have questions, if you can shoot us a message to one of the Master Keys profiles yeah. or our email. Comment, comment in there and we'll comment, try respond in the and comments. we're going to try and capture them all and we can try and respond. We, we really appreciate that. So, awesome. Thanks all for right. listening. Thank you for tuning in for this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you use. And if you're on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, give us a rating and send us some feedback. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us on social media at Master Keys Podcast. See you next week. When, 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 when I was broke, I had rich habits. Uh. When I was broke, I had rich habits. Uh.